Hi, and welcome to Explore, the Canadian Geographic podcast. I'm David McGuffin. It's mushroom season, so we're doing things a little bit differently on this episode. We're out of the studio and happily walking through the forest. We're all going on a mushroom and fungus ramble with Keith Seifert. Keith is one of the world's leading experts on all things fungi, having spent over 40 years studying them on five different continents, both as a research academic and as the leading fungi expert at Agriculture Canada. He's also the past president of the International Mycological Association. That's all the fungus experts in the world. And he's author of a new book, The Hidden Kingdom of Fungi, exploring the microscopic world in our forests, homes, and bodies. Today, we're focusing on the forest as we go on a ramble in the Gatineau Hills, just north of Ottawa. Off we go. All right, we'll get onto the main trail here. Have you been eating any mushrooms? Or do you I, need... I don't. I've always been nervous and I've never really done the research I need to do to pick mushrooms. So I, I have a cousin who does and, oh, yeah. uh, and all sorts of different ones, but chanterelles, I guess, are big around here. Is that right? Yeah, there should be chanterelles in the park and I would, be, with the oaks around, I'd expect to see some. But well, I'll keep my eyes open. And there's probably amanitas, which are the deadly poisonous ones as well. You learn the deadly poisonous ones first <laughs> before, you, before you start eating. That's a good survival skill, yeah. yeah. <laughs> What's this down here? Aha, good. So here, we here we have amanita. So this is, uh, I'm not sure if this is amanita muscaria, it probably is, but these two are very young. So, so amanitas are the, the famous deadly mushrooms. Not all species are, de are deadly and not all of them are poisonous, but most of them are poisonous to the extent that you really don't want to be eating them. Right. And e even the specialists, like they're, in Europe and France, there's one called Caesar's mushroom and that is so delicious that, that, uh, that people do eat that one a lot, but that's about the only one. This is probably Amanita muscaria, which is the one so Gore, R. Gordon Wasson wrote some books. I'm thinking the Divine Mushroom of Immortality, but I think that might that maybe have been about a different one. He's the same guy that wrote, uh, brought the whole psychedelic mushroom, hallucinogenic mushroom thing out into the open. But but this one um, makes makes some metabolites that are uh, not deadly, but but still make you feel very unpleasant. But it, I guess it's also hallucinogenic. So. So if, if you're willing to, to put up with the, those symptoms, then you can experience the other symptoms. It'll expand out. So these look like an egg, kind of yellow egg with some scales on, and it'll expand out to six inches or so. And then you'll see, you'll have this yellow, kind of egg yellow cap with, with these paler, sometimes brownish spots on. The same species can be bright red, so the the mushroom they always show on the cover of children's books is this one. Mm -hmm. So the, the amanita toxins can be very, they, they tend to be uh, liver and kidney toxins. And in the white ones, which are called destroying angels, um, they they can kill a person usually within three days or a week and it really doesn't take very much like certainly one cap is enough 
to, to kill a person. And there's really no cure. If you get immediate attention and you get a lot of support for um, um, dialysis and so on, then it's possible to keep a person alive long enough to find a kidney transplant donor sometimes. Um, so, but it's a very unpleasant thing. And they're so attractive, that's the problem. They're beautiful, they're big. Apparently they taste nice, the survivors tell us. Yeah. But it's really nothing to be played with. And, and even having touched it now, like I'm not worried about it absorbing into my skin or through my skin or anything, but I'll want to be washing my hands when we get back down. Wow, yeah, that's, so that'll be our warning mushroom for this episode. <laughs> it looks beautiful. Don't eat it. So that's incredible, like to the point of having to get a kidney transplant. I mean, that is. Yeah, the toxins are also heat stable, so they don't go away when they're cooked, which is another problem with fungal toxins in, in general. Quite a few of them uh, stay there when the food is cooked. So it's not like bacterial food poisoning, where if you cook it properly or thoroughly, like salmonella, that you don't get the disease. What are those there? I'm not sure. This smells like an agaricus, actually. I don't know. Smell, does that smell like a normal store-bought mushroom to you? It does. It smells yeah, very much. It's, it's, so it's like a classic-looking, like, yeah. white, yeah, toadstool mushroom kind of. Some of the agaricuses that grow in forests are poisonous. So I, I tend to avoid the ones that grow in forests. But and so which ones that are, you know, we're in central Canada, which ones do you enjoy eating that are sort of available and pickable? Well, chanterelles are my favorite. I haven't seen any as we've been walking around. Um, maybe if there was a part of the park that had more hemlocks, maybe that might. But I know they, they grow up here. This one is... Um, so yeah, this one's called a bolete. So you see it looks like kind of like a half a rubber ball or something. Mm -hmm. And it, it's soft though. It's like, so it's got pores like the polypores do, but it's soft. So it's nice and fleshy. Yeah, yeah. And some of these are quite good. Um, the porcini or chap or whatever. Yeah. Belitis edulis is one of these. And uh, this one is probably edible. I don't know what it is. But um, some of them, when you push them like that, stain blue. And those ones are supposed to be supposedly poisonous and if they stain blue poisonous yeah, yeah good to know so there's a i think this is swillus probably but yeah i've, I've eaten things like that um be, again because they're fair, fairly safe if you know a few basic rules and if you can beat the slugs and insects to them which is often a challenge that one had a, a healthy looking slug in there chewing away yeah and it, Another is the oyster mushroom, so you can buy cultivated versions in most grocery stores nowadays. And it does grow on the dead maples and elms and things up here, probably oak. It looks a bit different. It really does look much more like an oyster shell than the ones they sell that they cultivate. And it's quite delicious, but we don't find enough to eat very often. And, and again, the beetles really like it, so you've you got, you got to be lucky and beat them to it. And then morels are in the springtime, and they're, they're wonderful. And we, uh, we, search, we usually go out once or twice, usually right around uh, the May 21st, in, in this part of Canada anyway. The farther south you go, it's a little bit earlier. It's the season that lasts about two or three weeks. And they look kind of like eggs with pits all over them. 
Yeah, but they're tan colored and they uh, they have been cultivated but they have not been commercially successful in that way I'm not sure why I, th I think it's just too finicky to, to grow them and then they maybe don't store very well and the cultivated ones may not taste as good as the wild ones and we're as you pointed out we're largely in a maple forest here is there a, a sort of a, a better mix of forest for a, a wide range of mushrooms I would expect, like, there's a lot of, before I came here, I looked on iNaturalist to see what people had recorded in, on this slope. And, and so there, there's a pretty good diversity around here. Um, but it takes a certain, like, mushroom pickers find their spots. And, and they just go back and they don't tell anybody <laughs> where those spots are. Um, and then there's some mushrooms that you really can't guess. They, they occur in one place one year and then the next year... Well, you may not see them for five years, and then it's somewhere else. And so, uh, but I, I find with chanterelles, once you once you have a spot, you're you're pretty good. And morels tend to be a little more difficult to predict whether they're going to come back. You talk about delicious mushrooms. I think of, of truffles, which I guess isn't a mushroom; it's a but is a fungi. And uh, I mean, are those in this part of the world? Sure, they're here, and it's it's one of those. Um, because they're underground, so they're but they can be about the size anywhere between the size of say a marble and size of a potato, but they're underground. So so people who look for those, they look for places where the squirrels have been digging because the squirrels can smell them, or sometimes um, in the parts of year where there's times of year when there's a lot of midges around or the insects, you'll see kind of a column of insects hovering over a spot on the ground and then they'll get their rakes out and and see if there's truffle down there about most of the truffles do have an odor it's uh, but the ones that people eat are mostly the ones that are from uh, italy and france and i think that's more it's the tradition more than the actuality that they're that much superior a lot of the truffles that you can buy Nowadays, around here, come from China, and uh, you know they're considered inferior because they're not French or Italian truffles. I, I don't know if you like truffles. I, it's not my favorite thing, but some some people really get obsessed with them. They say they're around uh, oak trees is the famous host, and so you said there's ho oaks around here, and certainly on the other side of the ridge. Uh, down towards um, towards uh, over by Luskville, yeah, Luskville, that yeah, whole yeah, yeah. up there. There's a lot of white oaks, and uh, you know, if you wanted to look for truffles, that would probably be the place. Although it's very rocky there, so but it, it tends to be they they have sort of successfully cultivated truffles in Europe, cultivated in quotation marks because it still takes decades. So it's not something you can plant this year and eat this year, but. Um, but the trees have to be old. They have to be mature trees, and presumably the, the fungus just takes its time before it starts making the truffles. So, so this white blob, this one's about an inch across, but this fungus can grow up to six, seven inches across a big dome, and it's called Hericium coralloides, which is a, a mouthful. But th this fungus is an edible fungus, I've eaten it. It kind of t reminded me of eating uh, erasers we had in school. So not tasty. <laughs> Some people really like it. I think the ones I had 
the, the time I tried to eat it was probably too old. But Interesting. So it's very, again, this is a coral fungus and it looks yeah, very kinda, much like a white coral. Yeah, it, it kind of looks like a cauliflower to me. That, but it has little teeth. You can see that it, instead of having gills, it has little teeth that come down and that's where the spores come from. And this one is being used, or another species related, this is being used uh, in investigations for new pharmaceutical products for some for whatever reason it's making some interesting chemicals and uh, it's also being used in beer there's a a company i think it's a german company i'm not sure it might be one in asia too that's that's just adding the flavor i guess to beer and, and they call it lion's head beer yeah, interesting so over here i saw too on this other dead maple there's these um, kind of engravings in the surface of the wood underneath the bark and so these these are made by bark beetles so bark beetles are um, they're about about half the size of a grain of rice and they often carry f fungal diseases in their either in their mouths or in pouches on their bodies some some of them this probably attacked a dead tree but some of them do attack dead uh, living trees so dutch elm disease was one of those bark beetle transmitted fungal diseases and many of the diseases that are now affecting the forests in British Columbia, Oregon are also um, bark beetle carried diseases and in that case the beetle is worse than the fungus out in the west right now. It's uh, causing great devastation in the pine forest there. It's another one of these fungi that's used in biotechnology. This, this one is called turkey tail or um, Coriolis termites versicolorus, the, the Latin name. It does look like a turkey tail. Well, well it's named. It's very beautiful. It, the, all, all of that, that pattern of the different colors and rings around the sort of semicircle of the, of the bodies. And then the underneath is, uh, if we looked with the hand lens, we'd see that that's like pores, as if someone's taken a pin and just um, poked a pattern of pores in the bottom and those so those are called polypores that's a group of fungi and it's out of those pores that the spores fall and this is a white rot fungus so we it's one that uh, does degrade lignin and so in the early years of uh, pulp biological pulping research this was a big one that uh, they used for, for to study the enzymes that were involved in breaking down lignin. Yeah, fascinating. We have a bed of pine needles here. And um, if there are like pine needles in my yard. Yeah, so, so on these pine needles, you can see the, the endophyte that have that were in the green needles up there and not, they've fallen on the ground and now they're coming out so on the needles you can see what looks like a pencil line that's that's being drawn around the oh, yeah. the needles that's called a barrage zone so when there's two 
um, different competing colonies on the same needle. They bump into each other and they build a wall yeah. bet between themselves so that they can sort of uh, yeah. wall off their own share of, of the nutrients there. And then around there, there, there's a lot of little black specks on the needles. I don't know, I didn't really see any of the, what, the lophodermiums that probably are there. They look like an oval, a black oval. Yeah, I see from on this side over yeah. here. And some of them have a like a slit. And and so that's lophodermium and that's a really common endophyte on um, probably most of the needles of, of this tree have have it. And they produce to toxic compounds that stop insects from eating the needles. So that's the nature of the symbiosis. The the tree gives the fungus home and the fungus protects the tree from being eaten and then when even though we call them evergreens the conifers drop their needles i think it's three years two to three years with the white pine so they're not really up there forever so every spring and sometimes in the fall you get this dump of needles onto the ground like this and, and then the, the lophodermium comes out and starts to sporulate because it wants to get back in so it'll shoot spores off into the air amazing I'm guessing proximity to water is that good for fungus life, or does that not necessarily? Yeah, well, I mean, they they need water, like all living things need water. So um, most it, they don't need too much water, so that can be an issue. Um, if if water, if wood or something gets waterlogged, there's no oxygen or not enough oxygen for the fungi. So it's kind of a happy medium, but. In a normal living tree, the outer wood is very wet and the inner wood of the trunk, it's not dead, but it's not really respiring, and so it's drier in the middle. So fungi sometimes find a way to penetrate through the outer sap, what it's called, where the sap is actively running up, and then they get through into the heartwood and, and then they can cause decay in the center of the tree so you end up with what's called heart rot and the tree is kind of a cylinder then right so not not great for the tree at that moment uh, you can see it here so there's there's the heartwood yeah so and this up. is the sapwood on the outside and you see all uh, sapwood is uh, wetter all kinds of fungi growing there the uh, heartwood is drier and there's only this thing yeah, so we're looking at a, a cut of a tree here, basically. Yeah, this is a cottonwood, I think. I believe so, yeah. Yeah, and so you can see how thick the bark is. You'll have certain fungi in there. You pull it off with no bark beetle tunnels on this one. But uh, there's a ring, as you say, of, of fungi around the outer side of the cut. And yeah, this yeah. head are very, still very solid. So th like this, this one is kind of, looks like more like a mushroom, but no, it's another polypore. So it's similar to what we saw, the turkey tail. I'm looking at these yellow dots there. So they're, they're about, a, they're yellow dots and about a millimeter or so across. And uh, that that's a group of fungi they called the ascomycetes. So they're actually the biggest group of fungi. There's, I think about 100,000 known species of them now. And and some of them make these kind of cup-shaped bodies. They can, they can get up to be, not this particular species, but they, some of them can get up to be several centimeters. But, and if so, if you know morels, that, it's a distant relative of morels, but it's that group of, of fungi. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful color, like orangey. And yeah. yeah, they are, I don't know. I, I think as a 
person, I'm I'm attracted to small things, so I, I I look at things like that, and I'm automatically think they're pretty because they're they have a nice color, and there's there's something about the texture and everything. But once I got became 45 and had to start wearing glasses, it was much more difficult for me to find them. But that's the way it goes. It is the way it goes. I'm really interested too, just in your talking about the underground workings of the fungi in the forest and just about how it's an active sort of communication form amongst the trees and stuff like that. What you're talking about is mycorrhizal networks. So mycorrhizal means fungus root, derived from Greek. And so mo most plants have mycorrhizae um, associated with their roots. I think there's just 8% of land plants don't have them so in terms of species. So, so all of these plants in all likelihood have, have mycorrhizal associates in their roots. And what the mycorrhizae do is they kind of replace the plant's own uh, nutrient uptake system in the soil. So they, the plant can do it on its own, but the fungi do it better. So if they find a mycorrhizal partner, the mycorrhiza kind of makes like a knob around the ends of the finest parts of the root system. And then it sends out hyphae and it pulls in um, mo mostly uh, minerals from the soil, phosphorus, things like that. And that gets taken up into the, into the plant and trans transpired up to the, to the leaves. So most of the mushrooms you'd see in a, fungus, in a forest like this would probably be the, the sporulating stages of mycorrhizal fungi. I don't see any from where we're standing, but when we see some, I'll point them out. And um, they're... they're a tree, one tree can have it have its own mycorrhizal associates, but those same associates can grow over to another tree, whether it's the same species of tree or not. And so, in in the last decade or so, there's been a lot of uh, excitement, I would say, about from the discovery that that chemical signals can move across this network, and it's because called the wood wide webs yeah. and it sort of a, uses the internet as an analogy all of these node trees connected by a network of fungal species so we don't really know a lot about what this communication is um, you, you can certainly find a lot of kind of idealistic uh, speculation about about the nature of the communication but it does seem clear that um, certain mature they cook trees they call them mother trees uh, do nurture their own offspring in some way so there in some way there there seems to be some control of the of the nutrients that spread through this network exercised by some of the trees so that's very interesting and and but it it also um challenges again that the concept of what an individual is if if every Different species are being linked together through a fungal network in this forest. You know, wh where does one individual stop and the next one begin? We don't really see that with animals very much, although there are some animals that have symbionts, but not, not this kind of interaction. Fascinating to study and to speculate, I can imagine. Um, and uh, interesting too, just even at the most basic level, the idea of the fungi like improving sort of the ability to draw nutrients from the soil, like very symbiotic with the trees in that case. 
Yeah, we're used. To, we look at the world through our own animal eyes. <laughs> we have we have to go out and grab our own food and then stick it inside our bodies. Most organisms don't do that. They they kind of absorb food from their environment. So it's like if you jumped into your food and it kind of went in through your pores. That's what it's like for most living things. And and uh, and it turns out that because most individuals are actually communities they're they're passing these foods back and forth to each other so that's what's happening in lichens the algae are photosynthesizing making sugars passing it on to the fungus the fungus is providing a good shelter for the alga and presumably fulfilling some of its uh, physiological requirements and it's it's the same for trees and, and, and most plants that uh, they're, they're sharing the trees are sharing their sugars with the fungi the fungi are gathering up the minerals from around and providing that to the plants I mean there's just a level of genius to all of that right like that whole cycle um, and and which makes me wonder too I mean in terms of how long fungi has been on our planet well they they came along at the same time, same time as plants and animals, and roughly half a billion years ago, and uh, probably started out in the ocean as plants and animals did, and seemed to move on to land at about the same time as plants did. Um, so, and they kind of threw their lot in more with plants than with animals so that these relationships they have with plants and lichens and in, and in mycorrhizal roots and so on are, seem to be very ancient um, and, and seem to correspond with the explosion of, of plant life on, on land. So we can continue up nice little stream here break by. So there is a story to go with the stream. Many of the fungi that grow in leaves called endophytes, they're, they're stuck in the leaf. They may be there, if they're in a conifer leaf, they may be there for four or five years before the, it's time to escape and, and look for a new place to live. And so they often make spores on the dead leaves or dead part of the bark up in the tree. And when it rains, these spores, they have a shape that's made for dispersal in water. So some of them look like little canoes. Some of them look like uh, jacks. They're, you know, kind of four or five spikes coming out of the center. Some of them look kind of like balloons. And they, so they flow down the trees and they go up in streams like this. And from there they go, they find their way onto some twigs and they grow there for a while and then they make spores and they bounce back up into the leaves again and so it's this kind of cycling between the trees and the and the soil and the debris on this on the surface of the forest that but they're all microscopic so you don't really see them sometimes you see some foam i don't see any here like 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 the foam soap foam or something and that that's uh that's often the spores often accumulate there so if you want to see them you gather up some foam and put it under the microscope and there's they're so so weird looking it's really a lot of fun 
fascinating too, and it, it sort of strikes me. It's such a, I mean, there's there's so much fungi in the world. We're gonna go ahead this way, um, and probably still a lot that's not even known about too, right? I mean, there's still a lot to discover in the world. Yeah. Well, in my career, I don't know how many new species I describe, but let's say it's a hundred or something like that. But when we we can now take a handful of soil, or we can take a leaf, some bark, and we can uh, fingerprint all the DNA that's in there. So we can see that there's often hundreds or thousands of species in a sample, and the majority of them we don't know what they are. So that indicates that there's a, there's, there's a lot of work left to, to really understand the scope of fungal biodiversity. And um, they do tend to be very useful organisms. And the, the book is kind of about the relationship between humans and fungi and how fungi use humans and how humans use fungi. So I think they're, they're, it's not just an academic exercise um, unraveling this biodiversity. It has the potential to be very important for managing our world and mm -hmm. and again it's both in a positive and negative way you 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 don't while you're busy killing the things that you don't want with pesticides or antibiotics you have to be careful you don't kill off the things that you do want yeah. and important to understand what those things are and where they are yeah. and if you do understand what they're doing that's good so much the better but quite often we we just don't know so i could go up to one of these fallen logs that's been sitting there for five years and I could probably spend a career looking at the fungi on that log and I wouldn't know what any of them do like just cataloging would would take a career and and that's pretty sobering I mean it's exciting but if because what's important in the end is what they do good or bad or somewhere in the middle so and that's a different kind of work it's an incredible world you live in, or we all live in, I guess. You know, we called the book Hidden Kingdom, which isn't something that I made up. That's, that's a, a widely used phrase to describe fungi because they're, most of the species are microscopic and, and you, you're unaware of them until they do something. And then you see some symptoms or sometimes they, we would consider the, the mushrooms that come out. You know, just, it's just one phase of the life. Most of the life is hidden in the soil, hidden inside the trees, hidden in the leaves. And uh, every once in a while they draw themselves to our attention. And so it'd be the same with the fungi that grow on food. You know, we they may have been there the whole time and then all of a sudden they come out and we see them and we realize, oh, we may, maybe we shouldn't eat that. Keith, thanks so much. We're just back out of the forest now uh, on the driveway of my place. And so remind us again the name of the book. It's called The Hidden Kingdom of Fungi and it's published by Greystone Books. Uh, it's at the moment quite widely available in local bookstores and of course on Amazon and, and uh, online sites like that. Wherever you get your books. Well, listen, thank you so much. This has been, you've uh, illuminated the forest for me. Well, I hope so. Absolutely, in ways I never would have. You're not afraid, right? Not afraid, no. More, more fascinated than ever, if anything. So uh, thank you so much for coming on the Explore podcast. You're welcome. It's been a pleasure. 
And thanks to all of you for joining us on this mushroom ramble with Keith in the Gatineau Hills. As ever, if you enjoyed it, please be sure to give us a rating and review wherever you listen. It helps us to reach a wider audience. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. And a reminder that the Royal Canadian Geographical Society is holding its annual Fellows Dinner in person this year, the first one since the pandemic began, which is very exciting. It's November 16th at the Canadian War Museum in Ottawa. Tickets are available online at rcgs.org. There'll also be an online auction at that site too as we get closer to the big day. So be sure to check that out. And until next time, when we'll explore again, I'm David McGuffin. I think right now we're enjoying very much looking back at the Earth and it's just a fantastic experience and I just can't wait to get back and start telling people. We left Simpson about June 10th with the Fur Brigade consisting of a number of yacht boats, each manned by 10 voyageurs. For us in this, it means that in the oral history is very strong. Yeah, we flew low over every inch of the country that it could be. We were hoping that he would fire at us. Oh, I guess so.